Fringe with Benefits is brought to you by Cacao Bliss, chocolate that's actually healthy. If you're looking to lose weight, boost your energy, and reduce inflammation, check out Cacao Bliss. Right now, you can save 15% off your next order of Cacao Bliss. Go to earthechofoods.com and use the promo code TRANSPARENT. That's earthechofoods.com and use the promo code TRANSPARENT when you check out. Welcome to Fringe with Benefits. I am Stacy, your host, all six feet of Southern California sass, here to bring you all things off-kilter. Yes, I've been totally naked on national TV, and no, it was not inappropriate. My thoughts may have been at times, but hey there, prudes. We are all born naked, and we are all naked under our clothes, so get over it. I have a challenge for you. Go camping with no shoes. Level up and go with no shoes and no clothes, and let's see how tough you are. I'm mostly known for my smart mouth and my even smarter brain, and I come to you to scramble your brain on all things anomalous, peculiar, weird, and abnormal. Okay, we are going to do something really different this week and mix it up. First, I'd like to say that there is a bike rally on uh, right down the road, and so you're going to hear a lot of motorcycles going by. And maybe if you think about it this way, that every time you hear the rumble of a, a motorcycle, an angel gets its wings, it might be less annoying. So I have received some very useful criticism and I'm going to listen. So let's get into Stacy's socials before we get into our business and accountability segment. Let's start by giving the great Eric Clapton high fives and thumbs up for being a true warrior for human rights by not playing at venues that are discriminating against the not jabbed. If you have an opportunity to listen to his interview regarding his experience on getting it and how he thought he would be injured for life and he's still suffering till this day. And then and the discrimination from his own children he's received just by telling the truth and his feeling overwhelmed about where have all the freedom fighters, fighters gone and where did they all disappear to? You can really, really put yourself in that position because we are all right there right now. Stacy socials this week, I pissed someone off pretty fiercely. I shared a Yo Mama meme, and it, it said, this is how it went, Yo Mama is so ugly, the whole world faked a virus just to make her wear a mask. It was pretty funny, right? Well, someone took it very personally. She said she lost a few friends due to the cove, and I, you know, I feel really bad for her. I may have not lost anyone to death, but I did lose some friends just for being honest with how I felt about this whole thing, so... I'm sorry and not sorry to share exactly how I feel about this whole thing. It wasn't too long ago I was in a microbiology class talking to my instructor about the potential for a bioweapon or a super virus comparable to the Spanish flu that could wipe a majority of the population off the earth. It's almost as if we knew it was coming in one form or another, except the survival rate was way more optimistic than they wanted us to believe. In the news this week, besides McAfee's Dead Man Switch countdown, which is pretty interesting. If you have a chance to get updated on that, go do it. We also have this uh, really sad story about a woman who was killed by a pack of dogs. Cock County, Tennessee, on the 19th, a 29-year-old woman died after being viciously attacked by a pack of dogs. This is the second fatal animal attack in the same area in four months. On April 1st, Tony Allen Ahrens, 52, was also found dead in the area, and his body had been partially devoured by an animal. The Citizen Tribune say that police have been sitting on that case. Well, now a young woman is also dead. 
So I guess a comment in the Cock County Facebook group sums up this scenario. It says, I'm sorry, but I had but had appropriate action been taken with the first incident, there wouldn't have been the need for the public to take action and speak out about what's been going on. He says, maybe these posts may have saved, may save another life because I see nothing from the authorities that states the public is safe and these dogs have been removed from this man. So the community is saying it's this dude. Another commenter says that the dog's owner is a trainer. It says, quote, he's a trainer and obviously he trained those dogs in a particular way. That's the second time a person lost their life. Yes, he's guilty because he knew what he was doing when he trained them. And a sheriff's office spokesperson declined to comment when they were asking about this dude. The family members of Amber Miller, the lady that was just killed, she died six days later in the hospital after someone found her from her injuries, and it's pretty bad. We're going to get into that. So the family members have been talking to the media in order for the public to know more because, of course, the cops aren't saying anything. She said that she had so many wounds that they couldn't count them. And the sheriff's office is basically only saying that both fatal attacks are under strong investigation. Well, update on the 20th was that there were clarifications after receiving a redacted report from the county sheriff's office regarding the attack of Amber. Three large dogs that a witness described as big old bulldogs were spotted near the area, licking the wounds where she had been attacked. That doesn't really make a lot of sense, but we're going with it. Witnesses transported Miller to a hospital where the medical staff described her injuries as severe. Her calf was ripped off and her arms were barely attached to her body. The Cock County Sheriff's Office issued a warning for those traveling on Jimstown Road. The neighbors are saying that the dogs are no longer at the owner's residence. They know who this dude is. Well, the latest update, this is what we got. They looked into the owner of the property where both fatal attacks occurred, same street. His name is Charles Everett Owensby, who goes by Charlie Dogman on Facebook. He has a history of assault arrests. As recently as 2018, he was charged with aggravated assault domestic. That case is open. He was named on April 18th after discovering the body of Tony Ahrens near his mailbox on April 1st. The news examined a... 2014 criminal charge that involved him allegedly ordering one of his dogs to attack someone. At that time, police were serving a warrant at his home for possession of a weapon by a convicted felon, reckless endangerment with a weapon, aggravated assault, and violating an order of protection. Charges were the result of a 2014 gas station brawl in which Charles Olden told the police that Owensby approached him with a gun, pointing it in his face and screamed, we're going to end this today. That's when he struck him in the face with the gun, ordered his dog to attack him, and then tried to run him over. Most of those accounts were dismissed. Now it appears that his dogs have killed two people three and a half months apart. Cock County Sheriff's Office did not seize his dogs after the April 1st attack or the July 12th attack, both which occurred near to his home. Neighbors, of course, said that he, they're no longer at his residence. Well, who's surprised? The dogs are the central evidence, and now the evidence has vanished. The sheriff's office had initially suspected a wild animal attack, and they, they would have contacted the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. That agency would have quickly ruled out wildlife, tossed the case right back to the sheriff's office. When a dog pack kills a person and the dogs are not seized and educated, the pack will kill another person. We've seen this two other times, once in Mississippi and California. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation is now assisting the Cock County Sheriff's Office in both investigation. I wonder why the FBI is involved, or the TBI. That's, it says that's useless, however, if law enforcement is protecting the dog owner 
In 2014, a sheriff's office stonewalled the media after a former police canine trainer's dog killed his stepchild. Another report about poor April Miller. Steve Mays said he found her. This is the guy that found her. He said she was sitting up against the tree and he took her to the hospital in his truck. He said, I just hate to walk up and see her that way. I'm glad he, we was there to get her to the hospital. I'm just sorry we had to see it. She, he said that she was sit, over there sitting in that yard in front of the tree. Her arm was tore up to the bone and her legs were the same way. That poor girl, I've never seen nothing like that before. I've seen a guy get his throat cut before, but after I seen that, nothing like that. Wow, right? Insane and sad. Well, the reason why this is really important, well, not only because, you know, attack dogs are terrifying, pack dogs are terrifying, but also Dogman is terrifying. And now we've got this criminal rolling around with the name of Dogman. <laughs> I don't know. But there was a, an attack similar, which there's been a lot of them in this part of the country, folks. There's an attack that was similar of a Kentucky teen. This 13-year-old boy was found February 20, 2020 on a mountainside behind a residence in rural Knott County, Kentucky. The autopsy was performed and determined the cause of death to be from injuries consistent with an animal attack. Authorities were not able to identify what type of animal was responsible, but they're still investigating. No further information was immediately released. We had an update in August of 2020 that multiple dogs were found living in an old mine site near the area his body was found. These dogs were taken to the Kentucky River Animal Shelter where DNA specimens were collected and compared to evidence. State police say the lab comparisons indicated that the specimens from several of the dogs matched those found on the kid. And it also says that the investigation is still ongoing and will keep you updated. I have not found another update. So there's two things. We've got maybe a sheriff's department that's protecting a criminal who's raising attack dogs. But these attack dogs are to the point where they're actually eating the person's body. I mean, they're ripping them up so freaking bad that not only is it killing them, but that there's nothing left. So we only, we've got that. You know, why is the sheriff's office protecting this dude? Next, why is the FBI involved if it's just, you know, a local county issue and it's just one dude who's just been a public nuisance? Why is that? Two, the kid that was killed, people were speculating that that the DNA that they took didn't match any any species that were known. And now that the the update says that it did match this pack of dogs that they had found and had exterminated. The whole thing is a freaking wild, weird mystery. There's also a story of an older woman who was attacked viciously by an animal. It ripped her apart. She was on her walk. Somebody found her body completely mutilated. They don't know what killed her. I don't know. Just got to keep our eyes open, people. Got to keep our eyes open. Next, this dude. Okay, so this article. I, I pulled a lot of articles from the mainstream media. A lot of them are MSN articles. And I just really wanted to go through these and just kind of see the the blatant bias and agenda that's going on in these. Okay, so let's look at this first one. It says that man getting Bell's palsy after both Pfizer COVID vaccines may be coincidence. This dude got the Pfizer vaccine. He experienced fa facial paralysis after each of his doses, but it's thought they could not determine whether the nerve issues were caused by the vaccine doses. <laughs> One medical statistician not involved in the case study has highlighted the possibility that both of the nerve episodes could have been a coincidence. 
The case was reported in BMJ Case Reports on Monday. The authors wrote that nerve paralysis or palsies on one side of the face after each COVID vaccine dose were neither reported in any of the three vaccine trials nor in medical literature. Bell's palsy is a condition we all know where there's sudden weakness of the facial muscles. It's mostly temporary. People usually get over it, but basically half their face is paralyzed. I'm sure everybody's seen videos. The unnamed man, age 61, had no previous history of facial nerve palsy prior to having these vaccines. He did have a high BMI, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and type 2 diabetes, which is a large percentage of our population. you got to face it, folks. After five hours of getting his first dose, the patient developed facial palsy, and he went to the doctors. He was unable to close one of his eyes. The scans were normal. His symptoms disappeared after a course of steroids. Six weeks later, he got the second one. He got it two days after. He was prescribed another dose of steroids. His symptoms were more severe than the first time. He experienced dribbling and had problems swallowing. A couple of weeks later, the patient said his symptoms had almost gone. He was advised to discuss having future mRNA vaccines like the Pfizer shot with his doctor on a case-by-case basis and assess the potential risks versus the benefits. Well, if it was a coincidence, why would his doctor want him to consult before getting any mRNA uh, shots? The four cases of Bell's palsy of unknown cause were reported among Pfizer vaccine patients during the shot's phase three clinical trials compared to zero among who received the placebo. Duh. Okay. It's just blatant, folks. Really. It says that the report authors write that the incidence of the two palsy cases so soon after each of the vaccine doses strongly suggests that the Bell's palsy was attributed to the Pfizer biotech vaccine. However, they also said they could not prove that this was the case. Now they get some expert, some lateral expert come in, and this is what he says. His name is Kevin McConway. He is a professor of applied statistics at the Open University who was not involved in the study. He it, it highlighted the importance of a lack of definitive cause. So he <laughs> he's a professor of statistics He said in a statement, it's a possibility that the Bell's palsy episodes were caused by the vaccine, but Bell's palsy isn't all that rare a condition that it might be very unfortunate coincidence that the patient had two episodes at those times. So the news article for the lazy reader, because news is written for the lazy reader, basically is saying that it's, you know, headline, it was probably a coincidence. And that as it goes through and says, you know, it basically says that it's probably not a coincidence, but it might be. So we might want to classify this as a coincidence. I thought that was really interesting. you got to have some intelligence to see the insanity here. The next one says, Delta variant will be the most serious virus the unvaccinated ever get, says ex-FDA head Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Gottlieb, whatever the hell his name is, who was the head of the Food and Drug Administration between 2007 and 2019. He said on the dangers of the Delta variant, do we, okay. So he's basically saying, you guys all better watch out. He is the prior head of the Food and Drug Administration. He's warning us that this might be the most dangerous virus we'll ever get, or for the unvaccinated. Do we ever, have we trusted the FDA ever before? Have we ever really since the health freedom movement trusted the FDA? No, because they approve things for our consumption that are illegal in most European countries. There are things that we are, they're allowed to put in our foods and our medicines that are detrimental to our health. So do we really trust 
the head of the FDA for two years between 2017 and 2019? I fucking don't. Okay, next. Our great state of Washington has this really shitty governor right now. His name is Governor Inslee. And he went on a rant calling Trump voters a bioreactor facility spreading COVID in Washington. Get this shit. Governor Jay Inslee unloaded on Trump supporters in a bizarre, angry, and somewhat incomprehensible rant calling them a bioreactor facility. He blamed them for spreading COVID in Washington state. The comments were made on a Thursday press conference came from a question about how many healthcare workers are vaccinated. Rather than answering the question, he pivoted on to a partisan attack. This vaccine shaming comes as Washington has exceeded 70% vaccination initiation rate among those el- eligible. At the press conference, a reporter noted the high number of healthcare workers who initially refused to get the vaccination, and he asked what the number is today. So Inslee nor the Deputy Secretary of Health, Lacey Fehrenbach, were interested in spending time answering the question. Instead, they both started freaking out. Inslee first implied that you don't have an individual right to get vaccinated, arguing that the decision puts others at risk. Quote, I've talked to folks who say this is an individual right if I want to run the risk of dying on an innervator after, I don't know what the fuck, I think he meant incubator, after being sick for a month. Stumbling through a conversation that he never really had. Confusing innervator for incubator, obviously. The problem with that is that you're making a risk for everybody around you when you don't get vaccinated, end quote. This is a disingenuous interpretation of the risk, of course. If the people around you are vaccinated, there's a statistically insignificant risk of infection. And if you're not vaccinated because you've had COVID or currently have antibodies, you're not a meaningful risk either. So the, the, art, the writer of this article, badass, you got to check it out. Great opinion piece because it's complete and utter honesty and truth. This is what Inslee says. Because you are a bioreactor facility generating... What a fucking uneducated piece of shit. Let's go again. Because you are a bioreactor facility generating virus and spreading it around, including to kids who can't get vaccinated, I want to reiterate that. If you're a 50-year-old man who, you know, voted for Donald Trump and didn't think COVID was a problem and you didn't get vaccinated right now, you're a risk to every kid in your city because you could be spreading the virus to a 10-year-old who cannot get eligible for the vaccine right now. Now, some of us think that that's not responsible, and if that's judgmental, so be it. It is judgmental. The reporter writes, Inslee doesn't know that it is the Trump voters who are not getting vaccinated, but his office defends the insipid comments anyway. Spokesperson Mike Falk says, We can be open to suggestions for additional metaphors relating to how the virus damages the human body, which is what the governor was saying. (laughs) That's what he emailed the Jason Rance show, which is the writer of this article. He goes on to say that the governor has not said that everyone who isn't vaccinated is a Trump supporter. He has said that a disproportionate number of Trump supporters are not getting vaccinated, and that is clearly true. The writer says, perhaps Inslee should look in the mirror and see if he played a role in vaccine hesitancy. After Biden and Kamala Harris indicated the vaccine could be unsafe because Trump was involved, Inslee announced a group of independent doctors to review the vaccine data. Inslee and other Democrats politicized the vaccine, which they totally did. There's lots of footage of them talking about how if Trump endorses it, they're not getting it, you know? So Inslee is choosing to frame his criticism to attack Trump and conservatives when they could have easily called out the liberal side or not call people out based on ideology at all. Partisan hacks tend to dive into the dumpster with this odious strategy. Isn't that the truth? 
And the only time Ensley can feel morally superior is when he's attacking the people he thinks are low IQ rubes because they support Trump. Given Ensley can barely get through a press conference without misspeaking two dozen times, perhaps he shouldn't think so highly of himself. We're going to continue on because these are all legitimate considerations. It says that perhaps you should address their valid concerns. After all, when then candidates Biden and Harris implied the vaccine was dangerous because Trump was involved, partisans like Inslee set up independent committees to review the data to, to see if they were safe. That is the right thing to do. And they made this political while complaining that COVID mitigation shouldn't be, pretending they don't exist and act attacking people who discuss the risks as responsible people should only make folks more hesitant and suspicious. Conservatives, generally speaking, are more hesitant to accept government control of our lives. While censoring content, pretending it's misinformation to discuss risks accurately, Inslee and others claim that they've never mandate the vaccine, but then they mandated the vaccine, both literally when it comes to public colleges and effectively when they're putting the onus on the onus on businesses to check vaccine passports. Inslee refuses to consider why a small percentage of people aren't getting it and shaping a message that reaches them. He's too busy pretending he's morally superior to everybody else. And if he believes not getting vaccinated will kill people, well, then he's the one responsible for the deaths, not the vaccine hesitant Washingtonians he refuses to speak respectfully to. Woo! Real quick, at the end of this, Stacy Socials, I really want to get into the fact that we have some serious legislation involving our police force coming up actually tomorrow. Today's the 24th, tomorrow's the 25th. And it's it's a way of tying our, our law enforcement's hands so criminals actually get away with stuff. And this is what's happening with Washington legislation. Real quick, let me go into the fact that, you know, I'm armed right now because a mile from our house, we had two armed robberies in within a couple of days. So somebody is pretty much camped out in the woods, not far from me, and he's robbing people that he finds on the highway. He's got a gun and we're supposed to call 911 if this dude approaches us. So we have a description. We know what he looks like. We know what to expect. But at the same time, it raises some real concerns considering the new legislation that's coming out. We're going to start with the impact of our new state laws on the federal way police. This is closer to Seattle, but it affects all state police. It says that the majority of the police reform bills will go into effect on July 25th, affecting how they will deliver police services. One of the impacts is Police Tactics Bill HB 051054, which significantly changes the basic requirements of all police pursuits. The new requirements and explicit restrictions will virtually eliminate all police pursuits in Washington state. Moving forward, officers must have probable cause to believe that a person in the fleeing vehicle has committed a specific violent crime. This is a very high standard and nearly impossible to meet while responding to a 911 emergency call. An officer responding to the scene of a robbery or shooting may see a fleeing suspect vehicle and may have reasonable suspicion but cannot pursue it because the probable cause is not usually developed in the initial phase of an incident. This means more suspects will get away. Another significant change is the new use, new use of force law HB 1310, the impact of this reduces police interaction with non-compliant members of the public, which will no doubt have a direct impact to public safety. Under the new law, it requires police to have a probable cause before using force, as opposed to reasonable suspicion. This is completely changing the way police will, will respond, and there will be some calls that will no longer be responded to at all. 
For example, an officer observes a suspect matching the description of a burglary or shoplifting suspect walking away near the scene of a crime. The officer at that point in time has reasonable suspicion, but is no longer authorized under the new law to use a reasonable amount of force necessary to detain the person of the individual decides to run or escape capture. Another example is police officers were legally authorized to restrain people suffering from a behavioral health episode in order to send them to a hospital for help. This was a part of the community caretaking function. Under the new law, they may not restrain the person simply for purposes of involuntary treatment. This directs law enforcement officers to leave the area when no crime has been committed or there's no imminent threat. That removes us from many of our caretaking functions, they say. In regards to drug possession, on February 25th, 2021, State versus Blake, the Washington State Supreme Court declared Washington's felony drug possession statute unconstitutional. The Federal Way City Council created an ordinance making knowing possession of a controlled substance a crime. Physical arrest was an option. The Washington legislator then amended the state law preempting new lo local ordinances. Now people found in possession of illicit drugs must be referred to a drug help resource on two occasions before criminal charges can be brought against them. Dangerous drugs including cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, and fentanyl, and others. The third subsequent violation are citable as misdemeanors. State law encourages prosecutors to send cited cases for refer deferral. There's no statewide system to track the number of times a person has been given a drug referral, so a person caught twice with illegal drugs in another jurisdiction, for instance, and then caught possessing illegal drugs in federal way, will receive another two more referrals before they receive a ticket. In the current statute, the shift towards treatment-based approach has little accountability for the offender. That's ridiculous, and it's a waste of our law enforcement's time. We have a lot of mentally ill people that are using drugs on the street right now, and this absolutely, I mean, does nothing for the citizens that just want to be able to walk down the street safely. I guess police chiefs in South King County met several times to discuss the impact of the new laws in our communities and agencies. They participated in panel discussions with the Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs, and they work closely with their legal advisors to make sense of the language, which, because you know, they make it as, you know, as hard to follow as possible. So they had to work with these legal advisors to define terms such as possible, available, and appropriate, which are required but not legally, de legally defined within the new laws. They said that they hope that the legislature will fix what they see as new public safety concerns, especially now when violence is on a rise in our state. Police chiefs met with the Arm Washington Attorney General's office, and they need clarification on the contradicting elements of the new law, some of which I, they have, didn't even address in this article. The Attorney General's office will create a model use of force policy by July of next year, but that provides no clarification or guidance for this year. They say, as law enforcement officers, we have sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution and enforce the rule of law. To maintain public trust, we will professionally implement the new laws, provide the necessary training to our staff, and do our best to provide the type of policing that is demanded by our community, insofar as the law allows. And they end it with, it's an honor for us to serve you. God bless them. The next article goes into, you know, if you guys are wanting to read more about this, it really breaks down each of the laws in bullet points in a list of what the condensed content of the new laws are. Basically, I'm going to run through some of it real quick. The HB 1054 is around police tactics. This prohibits a lot of things that they used to do that they're not allowed to do anymore. 
some of them are really big things, guys. It, it prohibits the use of tear gas except in only three circumstances, harm posed by a riot, barricaded suspect, or hostage, hostage situation. There are a couple good things in here, like the no-knock warrant. Okay, next one is HB 1310, the use of force. The next one is SB 5051, decertification of officers. A lot, some of this stuff is really good, folks, but a lot of it is really, what's the word for that? Convoluted. SB 5066, the duty to intervene. This one is a great one. This requires any cop who's watching another cop being a dick or being abusive, they, they have the duty to intervene. That should be, you know, the golden rule with anything. If somebody sees an injustice happening, we should be intervening regardless of whether we're a cop, but especially if you're a cop. HB 1267, Office of Independent Investigations. This is creating the Office of Independent Investigations to lead as the lead investigative body for any investigation it chooses to conduct under its jurisdiction. That's kind of scary. That's like an internal affairs for the internal affairs. And then there are new policing-related laws, including HB 1089, Audits of Investigations, SB 5476, Statewide Substance Abuse Recovery Service Plan. HB 12123, Uniform Electronic Recording of Custodial Interrogations. HB 1140, Juvenile Access to Attorneys. HB 1088, Potential Impeachment Disclosures, The Brady List. This requires each county prosecutor to develop and adopt a written protocol. HB 1320, Protection Orders. It is new, new laws and amendments of laws governing protection orders for domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, anti-harassment, vulnerable adults, and extreme risk. And then SB 5055, grievance arbitration panels, SB 5259, law enforcement data collection. Might want to check that out. Also, the Gig Harbor police chief responds to the police reform bills. I wanted to quickly go through this because it was in the Tacoma News Tribune. It emphasizes that responding officers, when they respond to a call, they ha will have to develop a probable cause in order to approach somebody that they may suspect and can get away by the time he is able to develop that probable cause. And then the other one that we already talked about that only on the third incident can a drug carrying suspect be arrested. And then it's only a misdemeanor charge that for once that was something that was a felony. They emphasize that this puts drug possession on par with failing to transfer the title of your vehicle. It's the same charge. Then there's no statewide system to track the number of times a person has been given a drug referral. So the third drug possession incident might be, in fact, before, be their 10th before they face the lowest of criminal charges. And there, it will lessen the incentive to seek treatment. They want law enforcement to leave the area unless there is threat of in, imminent harm or a crime has been or is about to be committed. They literally would have to commit the crime in front of the officer for him to be able to do anything. That also means that if someone is suffering from a mental health episode, is perhaps suicidal, unless there is an associated crime, they are forced to walk away. Assisting the fire department in restraining a combative person during mental health crisis, restraining a subject who is attempting to take their own life, those tactics will now be illegal and no police officer would be willing to risk being charged with assault for employing them. That's heartbreaking. The legislature enacted laws prohibiting the acquisition or use of military equipment, 
Caught up in the definition of prohibited equipment is a 40 millimeter less lethal device that launches foam bullets, which could be useful in distracting or temporarily incapacitating a subject as an alternative to using deadly force. There are some of the laws put forth hastily in response to the police reform movement. These directives will result in a notable change in police response that will draw public consternation, consternation at some point and may make our communities less safe. Good police officers wanting to do the right thing in our communities are considering other career alternatives or moving to other states at a dramatic pace. It's very true. They have lost a lot of officers. The article goes on to say, I don't, this is the police chief of Gig Harbor, says, I don't view police reform as a movement in time or a set of laws enacted to correct the misdeeds of a few. I view good policing as treating all persons in a fair and equitable manner. Constant process improvement and focusing on the big picture are the keys to effective public safety. Transparency and honesty are critical pieces to maintaining public trust. Police reform and good policing are not mutually exclusive. As we adapt to the new way of policing, we will continue to provide the best possible service. What is possible may just look a bit different. He In that last paragraph, he there's a couple things that are trigger, trigger terms, mutually exclusive, equitable, big picture, transparency, maintaining public trust. I don't know. It's all weird and I'm right in the thick of it. I don't know. Stacy Socials was pretty exciting. I was also trolled on Instagram by this guy because I didn't respond to his comment. He got mad at me for posting a post. He was like, how come you can't respond to my comment and you're posting? Well, I responded because I'm fucking working. I was working in the the orchard and I'm not, you know, I'm not checking my notifications before I post something new. If I'm going to post a reel or a story, I'm just going to show you what's going on. I'm not going to go check and make sure I left nobody on red. Give me a fucking break. So he got blocked and then he tried to add me on Facebook and you think I'm going to add him? I don't think so. Don't be questioning people. Leave them alone. Okay, now that I got everybody hooked and rearing and ready to go, follow me on all my socials. Go to the Fringe with Benefits Facebook page. While you're there, go find Inward Survival's Facebook page. Stay up to date about wellness and goodness. For naked and afraid stuff and about my life, go visit my Facebook fan page at Stacy Leo Sorio. Be sure to follow the show's Twitter at Stacy Fringe. It needs some love. My Instagram is at golden underscore Valkyrie underscore. I am now on Not The Bee, golden underscore Valkyrie. This platform is awesome. Go check it out and give the free trial a go. You all do realize that we should be paying for our social media platforms, right? That way they'll respect our privacy and do work for us. YouTube is at golden Valkyrification. Rumble and BitChute is golden Valkyrie. These platforms are excellent, a great substitute for YouTube. And if there's something you just cannot find on YouTube, try here because they're going to have it. Parlay and Minds is at Golden Valkyrie. Miwi is Stacy McCauley, and Gab is Golden underscore Valkyrie. Go subscribe to the Fringe with Benefits Telegram channel. It's shocking and compelling content over there. And please visit InwardSurvival.com for more inv- information regarding the nonprofit. I do my own web hosting, and I would like to create some gated content eventually. Let me know what you're interested in learning about, and I'll get busy. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, go give me a rating and review. Five stars would be fire, but I'll take any review, and I'll read it on the show, especially if it's mean or funny. Please share the show. The disclaimer, I'm not for everybody, and some may get their panty loons in a wad due to my opinions and chosen content, so be aware of that. Go visit the Fringe with Benefits Anchor homepage link, uh, linked below and click the Support the Show button. If you want, feel free to make a monthly contribution for the show. Literally, you can sign up for as low as $0.99 cents a month as a contribution. 
Now we have a Patreon for Fringe with Benefits, and it's linked below. And every week, I must give a thank you again to our subscribers. I got a new one this week. Holla, Billy. And I appreciate it for your support. I love you. Remember, if you support the show, you support Inward Survival. Another angel got its wings. Welcome to the accountability segment. This is where I complain and bitch and moan about the last week. No, I'm just kidding. Real quick, uh, stoic thoughts at the end of every show. It's always my favorite. I realized that the last Socrates quote I read was kind of strange. It's almost as if it wasn't really his quote. There's going to be times when our sources aren't reliable, and I'm not sure if Socrates used the word weird regularly, and that's what made me skeptical. So I had to think back and look at that. It was a great quote, whether it was legit or not. It remains to be seen, but I wanted to be accountable and share that most mistakes are natural and sometimes we are gullible and sometimes we are deceived. And that's why it's really important to convey information accurately and honestly, even if it doesn't align with your motives. To be somewhat skeptical is the best way to go, especially regarding the reptilian people. Wink, wink. Patreon or patron? That threw me for a loop. I guess the site is called Patreon and the subscribers are patrons. I'm not as dumb as I look. I stumbled over this one. And if anyone has any pointers regarding this platform, please feel free to email me. I really don't know what I'm doing. This true crime website that I've been using is the best. I wanted to make sure I gave it full props. Great writing, lots of incredible stories, and I suspect I'll be utilizing it a lot. It's www.crimeandinvestigations.co.uk awesome website. Inward survival school of magic topics are sometimes repeated. I probably discussed visualization meditation before and if you already heard it I apologize. I did not realize until I was recording that we've covered this material but I must remember that sometimes we must revisit topics. A little repetition never hurt anyone. In fact it may help us. Other than those hang-ups I feel pretty good about the podcast. Like I said, feel free to email me and share your insights and especially your paranormal stories. And one thing before we move on, I belong to a Facebook fan group called Fans of Naked and Afraid and Naked and Afraid XL. I have left the group before and came back because fans are weird, you know, sometimes it's weird. People were like tagging me in things that where people were insulting me or saying awful things about me. Don't tag me in that shit. I don't, I don't want to know. I don't care what people, it's none of my business what people think about me. So I've left and I've came back. Well, this last week there was a post regarding the the discontent of the group about Naked and Afraid's new dating show. Can you believe they're doing this? I don't know what the hell they're thinking. I commented and it was deleted. The comment I made was, I wonder what they were paid versus what we were paid. There were a couple other comments in response to mine by a couple other survivalists that I didn't get to see because it was deleted. The moderators swore up and down that it wasn't deleted. And honestly, it doesn't really matter. I don't care. But I really want to know if these dating contestants had the same challenges as us. It doesn't look like they went without food, water, or shelter for that matter. Do you think it's unfair to people who have accomplished this incredibly hard challenge? Or do you think it doesn't matter? Should the franchise change the name as to not deter the fan base? Or is it not even a big deal? I have a couple questions, but in my opinion, it doesn't lessen my accomplishments at all. How do you feel? Are you going to watch it? I'll be calling it The Naked Bachelor. Send me your mail. This show is all about reading people's crazy stories. You can email me at fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com. This week I have a story for you that is true crime related. And I saved this from last week. So it's crazy. Let's get into it. 
On May 19, 1977, a 20-year-old Colleen Stan was hitchhiking along Interstate 5 to a friend's house in California from her home in Eugene, Oregon. Like a lot of young people in the 1970s, Colleen decided the best way to travel the long distance was by hitching a lift with other travelers. She made it to Red Bluff, California and waited for another car to pull over, wary of who might pick her up. She turned away two cars before getting into a blue van with a young family. The driver was Cameron Hooker, and the car with him was his wife Janice and their young baby. All seemed normal until Colleen used the bathroom at a service station, and when she returned to the car, there was a wooden box on the seat next door. Colleen had felt safe with the hookers, but it wasn't to last. After traveling further 20 miles or so, the car turned down a side road, and Cameron Hooker took out a knife. He tied Colleen up, gagged her, and placed the heavy wooden box over her head, depriving her of sight and sound. The hookers drove back to their home in Red Bluff, where Colleen was brought down to the basement. That night, she was chained up in a crate. Each day, she was tortured into submission. Her wrists would be tied to the ceiling while Cameron Hooker whipped, burned, beat, and electrocuted her. Cameron Hooker had agreed with his wife that she could have a baby if he could have a sex slave. It was no accident they picked up Colleen as she was traveling that day in May. They had planned to kidnap a young woman and keep her imprisoned in their home. Janice had previously been a victim of Cameron's depraved fantasies, and so she was happy to have someone else take the brunt of his punishments. Cameron and Janice had agreed that he would not have sexual intercourse with Colleen. Instead, they would abuse her and make her watch as they had sex afterwards. Cameron convinced Colleen that he was a member of what he called the Company, a powerful organization that was watching their every move and wouldn't hesitate to kill her if she tried to escape. Believing her life and her family's lives were in danger, Colleen signed a contract in January of 1978 agreeing to be kept as a slave. Colleen would be referred to as Kay, and she would was to address Cameron and Janice as master and ma'am. As well as making the 20-pound wooden box that was placed over Colleen's head to deprive her of her senses, Cameron Hooker had come up with other torture devices to wear his victim down. These devices included a stretcher that would inflict excruciating pain on Colleen and leave her with permanent damage to her back and shoulder. When the hookers moved to a mobile home, Colleen went with them. For up to 23 hours a day, she was kept in a wooden box under their bed. Eventually, she was trusted to do housework, even babysitting the children who had no idea that their parents were keeping a slave under their bed. Colleen's compliance earned Cameron's trust, and she was allowed more freedom over time. Cameron knew that Colleen was so terrified and conditioned into obedience that she would not try to escape or tell anyone the horrifying truth. Cameron trusted Colleen so much that he allowed her to call her family two and a half years after she had been reported missing. He even let her visit them four years into the ordeal in 1981. Cameron went with her, posing for a photograph as her loving boyfriend, fearful that any questions might distance Colleen from them further. Her family did not pry in case she lost contact with them again. They spent two and a half years prior to her phone call missing her and wondering what had happened. Now at least they knew she was alive. For the next three years, the abuse and confinement continued. In 1983, Colleen was allowed more freedom, including a part-time job as a cleaner in a nearby motel. While the initial agreement had been that Cameron would remain loyal to his wife, he had been raping Colleen at least once a month. Janice began to resent Colleen, and when Cameron said he wanted to marry her too, Janice snapped. Janice had been a victim of Cameron Hooker for their entire relationship, and had been compliant in his kidnap and torture of Colleen because it gave her abuser another outlet. After confessing to a priest who advised her to leave, Janice had had enough. August 1984, seven years after Colleen was kidnapped, Janice told Colleen that Cameron was not a part of the company, and Colleen went to a bus station where she rang Cameron Hooker and told him she was leaving. 
Colleen had been broken down to the point where she would do whatever Cameron Hooker had commanded her to do. Seven years, seven years of brutal torture, rape, and sensory deprivation meant she was compliant to the point that she did not report the ordeal to police. Janice had asked Colleen to give Cameron time to reform, but in November that same year, she reported her husband to the police. Janice also informed the Red Red Bluff police that her husband had kidnapped, tortured, and murdered Marie Elizabeth Spanheck, who went missing a year before Colleen was kidnapped. No body had ever been found, and Hooker is never charged with her murder. He was charged with eight felony counts of rape, sodomy, kidnapping, and forced oral copulation. In exchange for immunity, she agreed to testify against her husband and the abuse he inflicted upon her. Colleen also testified at the trial, recounting years of sustained trauma. The defense tried to use Colleen's compliance against her, saying that the rape should not be considered criminal, as Hooker had said she chose to stay. They had had a psychiatrist argue that the abuse inflicted by Hooker was not much different than Marine recruit drills. The judge interrupted the psychiatrist's argument. Colleen Stan was not a willing participant, despite what the defense intended the jury to believe. Cameron Hooker tried to convince the jury that Colleen had fallen in love with him and stayed of her own volition. He claimed that the sex was consensual, but the jury did not believe him. He was found guilty of seven out of eight counts for kidnapping and rape of Colleen Stan. The judge stated that Cameron was the worst psychopath he'd ever dealt with and sentenced him to 104 years in prison. Colleen Stan's ordeal resulted in an unprecedented trial. There had never been anything like it in the history of the state, and the judge thanked the jury for their service in the case. Janice Hooker has a new identity, as does Colleen Stan. She suffers chronic pain of her shoulders and back, a direct result of years of confinement. Colleen went un- underwent years of therapy and has a family of her own. Unfortunately, she's had a, a number of broken relationships, but remains resilient and actively helps others. She worked with a charity for abused women and is vehemently opposed to Hooker's reliefs. Despite an appeal, Hooker remains in prison. He applied for parole under California's Elderly Parole Program, but this was denied in 2015. At Hooker's 2015 hearing, Colleen said she wasn't convinced he wouldn't able w- wouldn't do it again. Dur- due to the current COVID-19 pandemic, he may be eligible for early release next spring. So he could have been released, and we never know, people. Okay, that's our mailbag this week. Send me your crazy stories. And especially ghost stories. I'm really, I really have a hankering for some Bigfoot and some ghost stories. So if you've seen anything weird, experienced anything odd, let me know. Fringe with benefits at protonmail.com. Fringe with benefits is brought to you by Cacao Bliss, chocolate that's actually healthy. And right now you can save 15% off your next order of Cacao Bliss. Go to earthechofoods.com and use the promo code transparent when you check out. How would you like to lose weight, boost your energy, and reduce inflammation with one delicious drink? Cacao Bliss is a superfood from celebrity trainer Danette May, and it starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun. Cacao Bliss is blended with 10 organic superfoods, including turmeric, MCT oil, and coconut for maximum health benefits. Cacao Bliss is friendly to paleo, gluten-free, keto, vegan, and vegetarian diets. And right now, you can save 15% off your next order of Cacao Bliss. Go to earthechofoods.com and use the promo code TRANSPARENT when you check out. That's earthechofoods.com and use the promo code TRANSPARENT when you check out. Let's get a little supernatural for our weekly topic, shall we? We're going to talk about giants. Now, I know everybody thinks that's pretty freaking ludicrous, like... Even even 
biological science says that it's absolutely impossible that there were humans that were maybe 12 feet tall rolling around here at one time. But according to all kinds of cultures all around the world, they have ton of folklore about giants and we're going to get into that today. First we're going to talk about the story the giant of Kandahar. If you've heard this story you'll know that it's absolutely nuts. Let's quickly get into it and see what the fandom of the cryptids fandom wiki has to say. They say that the giant of Kandahar was an enormous humanoid creature allegedly encountered and killed by a group of American soldiers on a mountainside in Afghanistan. Stephen Quayle spoke of an occurrence still classified by the U.S. government in his popular radio show, Coast to Coast. Everybody loves Coast to Coast. I do. The events allegedly happened in 2002 on a desert, deserty part of Afghanistan when the U.S. Army squad went missing. A special ops task force was sent to find out what had happened. The soldiers walked along a ragged mountainous trail until arriving at the entrance of a large cave. Pieces of broken U.S. military equipment and gear were scattered all around the clearing. The task force was about to enter the cave and explore its recesses when a 12 to 15 foot redheaded six digit double toothed humanoid emerged and attacked the soldiers. The giant impaled Dan, was the name he was given, with a giant spear and proceeded to attack the rest of the squad. The witnesses stated that it took about 30 seconds of continuous fire to take this sucker down. Between them, the squad was armed with M4 submachine guns, recon carbines, semi-automatic rifles, and 50 caliber BMG Barrett sniper rifles. This much firepower concentrated on one target for one second, let alone 30, would create a lot of damage. According to the witness, the giant wore canvas or animal hide covers to protect his feet like moccasins and smelt really bad. The creature's body was airlifted back to the squad's base by a helicopter and from there, it was loaded onto an aircraft and taken away, never to be seen again. Upon their return, the soldiers were made to sign a non-disclosure agreement to stop the word spreading of the encounter. The word spread anyways, guys. And then the witness states that he broke his silence because people have the right to know what's happening on our planet. Hell yeah. They go on to say that the giant of Kandahar is a hoax, as the Department of Defense has no record of this incident. L.A. Marzulli, an author, blogger, and filmmaker, is believed to have created or heavily influenced this legend. That's what they said. According to the xplan.net, they say that according to witnesses, this giant comes out, it picks up, literally stabs a soldier with its spear, picks him up into the air. Everybody's freaking out and shooting at him. And, you know, they finally take him down. It was He was packed into the helicopter and transferred to a secret location. God knows who, where, you know. Based on this quail fella's story, L.A. Marzulli succeeded in identifying and interviewing one of the members of the task force who actually saw and shot the giant of Kandahar. They said inside the cave there were remains of human bones, leading the military to think that the creature was a cannibal. According to the witness and the U.S. government didn't, according to the witness, the U.S. government didn't disclose the event and has no intention to do it in the future because, quote, giants don't match with the way we explain our world, end quote. They say the giant weighed about 500 kilograms, as estimated by the C-130 cargo plane team who transported the body from the pickup location to the U.S. The witnesses remembers that one of the pilots noted a terrible stench of musk and dirt, like a man who didn't shower for 10 years. And the witness told Marzulli that the odor was more intense than that of a skunk and close to that of a pile of decomposing corpses. The giant wore a canvas or animal hide to protect his feet. And it says, we searched online and retrieved an original interview. The witness 
talks details about the encounter with this huge being which had occurred in the remote area near Kandahar, Afghanistan. Marzuli calls the witness the shooter due to his active involvement in the killing and claims to have interviewed him three times on the phone and at different times to check for discrepancies in the story. Having found none, eventually he was convinced that the event was real and decided to meet the guy in person. The meeting occurred at an undisclosed location. So he heavily vetted this guy. And I don't know if you guys know who L.A. Marzulli is, but he seems like a pretty pretty decent dude. And he's very active in the paranormal genre world. So the new witness, codenamed Mr. D, was interviewed by Marzulli in the documentary series Watchers X and said, quote, When we came back to base, we would hear our colleagues talk about a unit that had found and killed a person inside or at the entrance of a cave. At first, I didn't think anything of it, but then I've heard that the fellow's size was three times that of a human and that he had more fingers and toes than a normal man and that he had red hair and a special unit was looking for him, end quote. Mr. K, introduced just as a worker, confirmed he was serving in Afghanistan in 2002 and his unit had been called for a rescue mission of another unit which had gone missing. And then his unit was deployed onto a crest of a plateau that was marked one of the checkpoints where the missing unit would have been would have reported their position. Since they left the base, the soldiers were wondering what could have happened to that unit. They thought an ambush, but that sounded weird. But even in that case, there's always time to message the base. There's no, in this case, no stress call had arrived. No signal had been sent. So these guys were already a little weirded out because it was just odd. They were looking for tracks. And then while descending a slope, they see the trail. They follow it and it curves to a large entrance of the cave. Like we said before, really weird and then they saw the bones and found among the rocks no identification from their observation point was possible with the bones shattered pieces of radio communication devices and u.s military equipment they figured that this was basically the missing unit so as they're as they're investigating this and they're you know they've got they're standing at a lower level from the cave there's a vertical wall of rock separating them from this clearing They're distancing themselves, assuming this anti-ambush stance. And then that's when this thing leapt out of the cave at a speed that caught them by surprise. They say that this thing was 12 to 13 feet tall. Mr. K said, quote, it was a monster, red beard, scarlet red long hair covering his shoulders. And Dan runs toward him firing his weapon. And then all of us come back to reality because that scene was surreal. Of course, Marzulli throws in the parts from the radio show Coast to Coast AM's interview with the testimony from the pilot who brought the corpse back to America. He said, quote, the creature weighs close to 1,100 pounds and it's been 10 to 15 feet tall. It was killed by multiple fire shots, it seems, in a cave in Afghanistan. Before dying, it attacked our men and could have also killed someone. It was a very, very bizarre story. It sounds like the tale of the Nephilim straight from the Bible. And we must assume that the giant must not be alone. It can't be the only one living on this planet. There must be others somewhere out there. Maybe he had a mate or children. Who knows? It was unfortunate that it attacked our soldiers instead of having a peaceful approach, but I guess that such a reaction has to do with the territory. He also mentions that it was impossible to move the giant off the ground by hands because it was too big. had a terrible stench, worse than a skunk. When the helicopter took off, the net hooked up under, with the net hooked up under, the signal that was sent to the headquarters was large, potentially human creature. So they asked, he asked him, how did you feel about that encounter? And he said that it was anger, obviously for his dead friends, but not only that. In their final report, the soldiers were ordered to lie, to tweak the order of the events in order, in accordance to what their superiors told them. Marzulli asked Mr. K to describe the giant one more time. 
It had six digits on his hands and feet. Its nails were weird because they had some kind of fungi, like bulky things on them, and their edges were irregular. The special unit is placed inside the Chinook chopper, and the two crafts go back to base for debriefing. On that occasion, the soldiers are ordered to sign a paper, which they committed to not disclosing any details, on top of falsifying a final report. So, for as, as fantastic as this story may sound, the testimony matches the one with Quill had presented a few years back. It's very interesting. Mr. D replies to Mr. Marzoli, My idea is that if things go exactly as the Bible says, they don't want it. If things go against Darwin's evolution, it can't be spoken out. End quote. Mr. D stresses how the story of the giant of Kandahar was something that all military knew about and took them as something that really happened. And when Mr. D went back to the U.S. after his service in Afghanistan had ended, he met with other military who had served elsewhere. Yet if I told him about the giant of Kandahar, everyone had heard about it. Quote, in the beginning, you think it must be a joke, a hoax. But when things start to go down a certain way, when they keep hearing, you keep hearing about the story, you realize it's not a joke. They kept on telling us to point our weapons up high. Normally, this means two shots in the body and one in the head, but they told us to point them always to the head of a man and then a little higher. And we wondered why they wanted us just to shoot above a man's head. Marzulli asked him to confirm the time in which the flight allegedly happened. Mr. D said that such a fake story wouldn't make any sense. During his active service in Afghanistan, he witnessed things he'd never been able to explain, such as lights in the sky during the shooting and orbs, tennis ball-sized spheres which flew around making strange sounds. The man had similar experiences in Iraq as well, near Hadafah Dam area. When he was on duty in the underground prisons below the dam, he tells about how the prison prisoners kept on screaming about a terrible feeling that haunted the place. Later, Mr. D read the Bible and learned that an angel had been chained in that very place. Scary, which is the Hadafah Dam that's on the river Euphrates. Specifically, they quote the book of Revelation, which says, Saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were to prepare for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to slay the third part of men, end quote. Rumors had it that the soldiers detained in the Hadifa Dam prison were scared to death, and all they screamed was that they could hear them. Even the guards drew straws to choose who had to go down there to get them. Nobody wanted to go down there. Back to Afghanistan, Mr. D adds that the rumors upon the existence of the giants came also from the locals. They talked about cannibal monsters dwelling inside caves. The soldiers compared these stories to the American Bigfoot. So we got three witnesses who don't even know each other. We've got Quills, Mr. Zulis, Mr. K, and Mr. D. They reported the same event. We believe that the giant of Kandahar was a true event. The most interesting thing about Mr. K is the type of training he was given in case of a fight inside of a cave. We've heard a lot about this before, that our soldiers are, are, are given training to be fighting underground or in caves. It says that the background for that training was that there was Afghani rebels that were hiding in caves and that if a shootout occurred in there, the U.S. military had to point their weapons above the head of an adult male after firing the first bullet at a head level. Ladudno in northern Wales is a coastal village with a very old copper mine. This area is located about 220 meters above the Irish sea level and is known as the place of the Great Orm Copper Mine. More than 2,500 hammers have been found inside this mine, all dated back to the Bronze Age, so about 3,500 years ago. 
It's believed that the tunnels inside this mine are several kilometers long, although only six have been explored so far. It is known with certainty that there exist nine subterranean levels and more than 1,700 tons of copper have been extracted. An incredible feat that if we think that the community of that time didn't have any technological tools to do it, at least not the same machinery we have today. The heaviest hammer men use today weigh about 9 kilograms, but the most used are the 7.5 kilogram ones. Now let's imagine to enlarge a 9 kilogram hammer 300% and we would obtain a tool of 27 kilograms, which to be maneuvered could consist in a handle of close to 3 meters and a metal head as big as a cinder block. Even the biggest strongmen, the strongest strongmen, probably would not typically use that to work with. There were tools that were found even bigger, weighing 30 kilograms, were found in the ore mine by some archaeologists. And then, so basically, a man capable to lift up a hammer of that size should have been about 13 to 16 feet tall, which would be three times the size of an adult male today. Now, in the Bible, as in Genesis, they refer to a race of giants who lived on Earth. And then the Sumerians, as well as Egyptians, have beliefs showing remarkable evidence of enormous human beings who interact with smaller men. There are differences between the two races. For the Sumerian giant had six fingers. In order to control the two additional digits, a brain would have had a, have would have had to have been a different structure, either larger or more complex, or both. And this would also indicate that these giants would have possessed more intelligence. Then you have the megalithic structures scattered all over the world, from South America in Peru to Egypt in the Middle East the British Isles, the Pacific Ocean, the Easter Island phenomenon, and these are clues to support the theory that a race of giants actually existed on Earth. North America also has a particular trait of prehistoric cultures, an element called UPT, or unique physical type. It's a series of giant humanoid skeletons with hyperextended cranium, extra dental structure, double or triple row of teeth, Historians have collected data all over the U.S., even though the largest concentration of these unique physical type remains are in the Ohio River Valley and along the Mississippi River. There are many cases which bear evidence of this, from written records, still available in municipalities and counties and cities, and internal and external studies carried out by the Smithsonian. Case in point, May 1841, Franklin, Kentucky. Several skeletons are dug out from a farm's field. One of them was of outstanding dimensions, at least twice the size of an adult male. Another case in point, Joe Davies County, Illinois. A series of burial mounds are opened after years of excavations and a pit is found at center that had to be dug about 70 centimeters below the original ground level. The bones found in the pit belong to a race of giant stature. The skeleton had been buried in a sitting position with its legs stretched towards the center. Another case. Kanawha Valley, West Virginia. The skeleton of a man at least eight foot tall is found. After the U.S. government's takeover of the American archaeology in 1900, the academic withdrew a clear political line of total denial for the existence of such anomalies. And this policy is still active till today. Now, it, you know, if we get into the biblical stuff, I'm not really into the biblical stuff, but you know, for just to explore it. The race of giants, the Nephilim, which is the first race mentioned in the book of Genesis. The origin of the word Nephilim, Nephilim, is defined as giants, but also some translate it to those who have fallen. The earliest versions of the Bible indicate that the Nephilim as giants and that their nature is further complicated by the ambiguous definition found in the book of Genesis. There are indeed two different interpretations upon the origin of the race. One is the Nephilim would be Seth's offspring. 
A certain fragment from the Qumran scrolls contains the most ancient known mention of the children of Seth, claiming that God condemned them for their rebellion. Other early references about Seth's offspring, which rebelled against God and mated with the daughters of Cain, are in the writings of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, Yochai, the Augustine of Hippo, Julius Africanus, and in the letters attributed to St. Clement. Even the modern Amoraic Orthodox Bible presents the same interpretation. And then two, the Nephilim would be the angel's offspring. A lot of people think that the angel, angels came down from heaven and they uh, mated with the females and that's where you ended up with the giants. It says there's a good number of ancient documents referring to the Nephilim as the sons of heaven or the angels, including the scrolls of the Dead Sea, the book of Enoch, the Jez manuscripts, and the modern version of the Old Testament, Pseudopigraphia. Some Christian apologetics, such as the Tertullians and the Lactantius, (laughs) were of the same opinion about the Nephilim. They were convinced that they were angelic beings who mated with humans. Genesis describes the sons of God, males of divine nature, having intercourse with the daughters of men, females of human nature. From this, it seems evident that the sons of God were seen as supernatural beings. If you go to L.A. Marzulli's website, he gets into this, and he says that he's convinced that the creature is a manifestation of the Nephilim described in the book of Genesis and offsprings of gods and humans. However, Snopes.com, he does mention that Snopes.com mentions the only serving soldier called Dan was killed that year in a war-torn country, died with other three others in accident-clearing explosives. That's interesting. He points out that there's been an ongoing effort to get samples to perform Um, DNA testing on the Peruvian skulls and other organic creatures, but there's bureaucratic red tape. The TSA and other roadblocks have prevented it. After decades of being hidden in a box in Oregon, a huge Peruvian skull is found, one that's been in the U.S. for so long it became available for DNA testing. Along with this, red hairs from the baby mummy from you have to check out Watchers 8 and three other schools um, and three other skulls were tested. The origins of the elongated skull people were finally known scientifically. So maybe sometime we'll get into the elongated skulls. That's a really interesting topic. Back to the giant theory. There are a ton of local stories about giants in Afghanistan. This is a well-known phenomenon by the locals who tell stories of cannibalism and frightening encounters. So if we go to, you know, maybe more Southeast Asia, in the Philippines, they have a lot of giant lore, but they don't, they have giants that are not necessarily evil. They have stories of the giant Jizarab from the Izneg tribe. He showed a lot of kindness. He was visited by hunters in the wilderness and asked for fire, and he provided fire so they may use it to cook their food. Another being in the Philippine lore that deviates from the supposed evil nature of giants is the Sibirayangan from the Izneg and the Epayo folklore. She is a female giant found in mythology, and she displays a mother-like fondness to a lost man who found himself inside her house. Fearing her husband might find out that there's meat in their home, the good giantess hides the man inside of chest. When her husband is no longer in sight, she gave the man food, water, and pointed him in the direction for his escape. There have been numerous discoveries of giant human skeletons from different parts of the world, but not too long ago, a social media post claimed a giant human skeleton measuring up to 17 feet was excavated in Davao Oriental. 
Areas like Japan and South America have become hotspots for discovering giant human skeletons that were buried tens of thousands of years ago. It seems just as quickly as evidence piles up, it's debunked as a hoax. Beyond the excruciating struggle of scientifically verifying or debunking evidence of the existence of giants, let us remember what the, their tales have taught us. This is a really important part. Says that whether or not giants are good or bad, these stories challenge not just our imagination, but also of, of the power of our will to face giants in our lives. So it may be a metaphorical giant or a thematic giant. Like We all have challenges and that these these stories help us see situations in which people come across really, really big situations, including giants, and they overcome it. Uh, Dr. Ramos, in one of his books, Giant Lore Bears a Kind of Emotional Release to Small Children. This pertains to the triumphs of the small and the feeble characters against the hulking giants using only their mustard courage, wit, and intelligence. In time, the lessons enforce the idea that even gigantic challenges can be overcome. Just as the powerless yet brave and smart mortals manage to defeat the giants in mythology and folklore, in the case of giants, myth becomes as important as truth itself. Mentalfloss.com. They give us 10 mythical giants around the world. I'm going to run through them real quick. We've got Atlas. He was one of the titans who went to war against Zeus's gods of Olympus. In Iris mythology, Balor was the king of the Fomorians. They were said to be an early, early settlers of Ireland. He was very much like the Cyclops with one giant eye. And if you were caught in his gaze, you would die instantly. So I guess he kept his eye closed until he had to use it. Then there's countless giants in Norse legends. Then the Yentils are giants from the mythology of the Basque region of France and Spain. They were said to represent the pagans who inhabited the land before Christianity. They were enormous, strong, and hairy, and loved to throw rocks. Very close to the Sasquatch of today's lore. Goliath was also a biblical giant defeated against odds by the shepherd David in the book of Samuel. Polyphemus, Polyphemus, that's probably correct, is perhaps the most famous of the Cyclops, the one-eyed giants from Greek mythology. According to Homer's legend of the Odyssey, Polyphemus was the son of the sea god Poseidon and the sea nymph Thusa. He lived on the island of Sicily with his fellow Cyclops where he tended a flock of sheep. Japanese folklore, the Oni, are often known as hideous giants in demon form. We've seen probably lots of art of them. Gogmagog is said to have been the last giant of the British Isles. Most of the information on him comes from Welshman Geoffrey of Monmouth, who in circa 1136 wrote the Historia Regnum Britannae, the history of the kings of Britain, in which he describes how early Britain, then called Albion, was inhabited by a race of giants. And then you have the Kumbhakarna, is the giant fe demon featured in the Hindu epic, the Ram Ramayana. This was a giant in size and giant in appetite. He has, his tongue was tied, and so when he tried to ask for a blessing instead of, he asked for a bed. And the result was he's doomed to sleep for six months of every year. And then last but not least is the, the Greek giant Orion, just like in our skies. We also have Viking lore. The giants were the enemies of the gods. The giants of Norse lore are not creatures. They're supernatural beings with much the same ancestry as the gods themselves. But they're not stupid in some cases, understand the universe, or see future even better than the gods can. Most surprisingly, the newly acquainted with Viking lore, not all the giants are necessarily big. Like the opposing forces of creation and chaos, they seem to be. They will cancel each other out, and oblivion will resume before the universe is perhaps born anew. 
anybody subscribes to Gaia, you will see a lot of documentaries about giants and giant skeletons and the conspiracy that maybe the Smithsonian is hiding things or they are confiscating archaeological evidence and then stowing it away in their basement. (laughs) You never know, guys. So according to Gaia, their article, Giant Skeletons Have Been Found Buried Beneath the Mounds Across America, They claim that during the 19th century, there were hundreds of reports from reputable sources of giant skeletons unearthed. In these burial mounds across the United States, some of these are the size of the Great Pyramid of Giza. For example, the Cahokia and Monk Mounds in Illinois and Missouri, they were thought to have been built before the arrival of Columbus. The Cahokia Mound is 100 feet tall with a 14-acre base, almost an entire acre larger than the Pyramid of Giza. The Monk's Mound is just as tall within a thousand, with a thousand foot wide base. Jim Vieira has made it his mission to explore this mystery behind these mounds and where there is documentation of unearthed skeletons. Vieira, he is a stonemason by trade. He found himself intrigued after finding a plethora of mysterious stone mounds through New England. He found that the construction and particularly the stonework of these mounds was impressive. He noticed that the orientation of the mounds was such that the entrance Entrances faced a direction that was in alignment with the sun during the equinoxes. The mounds were built with massive stones and were present long before colonists in Europe crossed over. He also uncovered old reports of new, in New England of giant skeletons unearthed from these mounds. Often had two rows of teeth and jaws that could fit over the head of a normal-sized humans. The skeletons ranged in length from 7 to 10 feet tall. While this may sound ridiculous, it's not an isolated incident and supported by reports from reputable news sources of the time. Another article from Gaia, The Truth and the Myths of Giants. Now, if you do look up Gaia, they have all kinds of videos that you can check out. According to this article, it says in the summer of 1520, a Spanish expedition led by the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan was well into its circumnavigation of the globe. By the time they reached the shores of Argentina, they had already encountered several native tribes, but there was something special about the natives of this land, and the account from Antonio Pigaveta, the voyage's official chronicler, would capture the imaginations of Westerners for years to come. According to his journal, the natives of Patagonia were giants. Now, these myths and legends go back through every culture in every corner of the world. And in a lot of these cases, the mythological aspect is super obvious, but not all of them. Some of these stories aren't heavily exaggerated, and there's evidence that these giants did walk the earth. In the 1800s, European settlers continued to expand across the U.S., and they started coming across these skeletons that were in these these mounds. Now, there were sensational headlines regarding what was found in these mounds. Giant skeletons. These weren't just a few obscure papers. They were reputable sources, like Scientific American and New York Times. Even Abraham Lincoln referenced the giants in 1848 during a visit to Niagara Falls, saying that the eyes of this species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. According to these numerous articles published during the time, the skeletons were regularly found in between 7 to 10 feet tall, and some reported even taller ones, like the one mentioned in the New York Times article from 1885. Quote, if the whole frame is in proportion to two thigh bones that were found, their owner must have stood 14 feet high. A representative of the Smithsonian Institution is here investigating investigating the curious relic. This was being investigated by a representative of the Smithsonian. Some believe that the Smithsonian was involved in covering up these artifacts. Because, of course, now they say that there was no such thing. But we have 
we have evidence that it did exist. And then if they, it becomes even more compelling when you consider all the oral traditions of the Native American tribes talking about the races of giants. In a more recent discovery, 205 graves were unearthed in China Shangong province. The archaeological dig found that a significant number of these men stood about the six-foot mark, with the tallest man standing at 6'3". Now, this may not seem super tall, you know, but 5,000 years ago, when these people were still alive, they would have loomed over their Neolithic contemporaries, who were much shorter. The Central American Mayans, for example, had an average male height of 5'2 and an average female height of 4'8". Now, the giants of Longshan were unusually tall for their time. Their height wasn't out of the realm of what we would consider within the established narrative of our past. So what happens when we find evidence that would completely upend that narrative? In the 1960s, miners in the Otei Mountains of northern Namibia discovered the fossilized segment of a femur. The mineralized bone was turned over to Philip Tobias, the late paleoanthropologist from South Africa, and it remains in his vault at the University of Johannesburg till this day. In Michael Tellinger's video posted in 2013, he visits Professor Francis Thackeray at the university to view the impressive artifact. The professor identifies the mineralized bone as having belonged to a homo sapien, and when he brings out an average-sized femur for comparison, the difference is clear. The fossilized femur appears to be at least twice the size of the normal one, but despite the abnormal size, there doesn't seem to be no outside interest in studying or dating the artifact. So how would our evolutionary tree differ if they had discovered fragments of someone like the tallest man in recorded history, big dude, Wadlow, Robert Wadlow, he reached a height of 811 before he died in 1940. He suffered from a condition called hyperplasia of his pituitary gland, which results in abnormally high level of human growth hormone. In fact, most of the well-known giants of our time had similar issues. Um, you've, you, there are pictures or historical pictures of Wadlow standing next to his dad. His dad was about 5'11", but standing next to his son, he appears like a dwarf, his head just coming up over his son's waist. And this comparison happens to be the rem reminiscent of the giants of Patagonia from what they said. This is an excerpt from Antonio Pigafetta's journal. Quote, but one day, without anyone expecting it, we saw a giant who was on the shore near today's Puerto San Julian, Argentina. And he was so tall that the tallest of us only came up to his waist, end quote. The account goes on to say that two of these giants were seized as hostages but did not survive the journey back to Spain, which may sound like a convenient coincidence, but considering only 18 of 270 men who began the voyage made it back alive. Their odds of survival weren't so great. Even Magellan didn't make it back. Sixty years later, when Sir Francis Drake made it to Patagonia during circumnavigation, his nephew wrote that Magellan had exaggerated the height of these people, stating that the men were only five cubits, which is about seven and a half feet tall. But geez, that's still huge, right? So we may never know if a race of giants walked the earth, but how much truth is there to the mythologies surrounding every culture regarding the giants? Consider this. The most, most of the animals that walk the earth today have a giant prehistoric ancestor. We have the megalodon, beats the great white sharks by about 40 feet. There's the titanoboa, which was a snake that reached 42 feet. And the giant sloth, the megatherium, was big as a modern day elephant. So you're telling me that there wouldn't have been ancient humans that maybe reached 14 feet tall and maybe just maybe there's a few of them left today that don't take too kindly to visitors i don't know what do you think it seems kind of outlandish it seems kind of crazy but isn't that what we're here for
We're going to get rid of the guest spot this week because this episode's just running really, really long. And I'm going to bust out Inward Survival School of Magic segment. And then I'm going to run another ad. If you want to stick around for the Stoic Thought of the Week, you're going to have to wait until the end of the ad. It's the only way I can keep you guys here, so you have to listen to all of them. Any sponsor that's willing to sponsor this podcast deserves some respect and attention. So go visit them and give them some business. I would really appreciate that. And don't forget to use your promo code. I will be running an ad after this segment. Stick around and then you'll get the stoic thought of the week. This week I wanted to talk about self-defense. I got I pulled a couple really great articles that have some just real basic stuff. And I'm going to give you just some real pointers, things that you want to practice and keep your mind focused on in case you are put in a situation in which you're being confronted or attacked. So one would be to strike the attacker using a headbutt. You don't realize how strong the top of your head is. Make sure, like, just be really, really careful if you're going to do this because... But if you are grabbed from behind, this is really your best bet, especially if your arms are pinned down. So using a headbutt. Next would be to strike the eyes. The eyes are a very vulnerable spot for an attacker. So make sure that you claw the fingers of your hand across one or both of their eyes from left to right or right to left. You can use loose fingers or you can poke the fingers or you can use your thumbs. Whatever you can do, get the eyes. Strike the attacker's throat with a hand. Move your thumb out of the way and using four fingers of one hand, strike into the throat with speed and force. Hit and pull back. Next would be use your palm strikes. If you've taken any self-defense classes, you know that the palm of your hand, especially that really strong bone near your thumb, is a really great spot to use when striking someone. Next, you'd want to maybe, maybe if you have some experience, use a front kick. You have to be really careful with this because you are left kind of vulnerable. I don't remember if you guys were ever in school and you had to try to kick somebody and they grabbed your leg. That's a sucky situation. Don't put yourself in that situation. But if you're pretty, pretty, uh, got a good foundation, you could probably knock them back pretty good with a good front kick. Next would be knee strikes. Your knee is a good way to strike, especially if you are super close to that person. Make sure you thrust your knee up and forward, striking groin, midsection, whatever. For increased effectiveness, grab onto them with both of your hands around the neck or the shoulders and pull down inward while striking. Some other good pointers is one is don't let yourself be an easy target. One of the best self-defense tips is not to get into a situation that requires self-defense in the first place. There are things that you can do to not allow yourself to be an easy target. One would be... There's safety in numbers. If you're leaving somewhere, it's nighttime, make sure you walk to your car with a buddy or a group of people. You're far less likely to be attacked if you're in a group of people versus being solo. Next would be to pay attention. Situational awareness. We talked about this last week. Look around you. Keep your head on a swivel. You want to know. Don't be looking down on your phone. Don't be shuffling in your bag. Don't have your headphones in. You want to be able to hear and see what's going on. Stay vigilant. If someone is looking at you and you feel like you're getting bad vibes off them, look at them. Let them know you've noticed them and that you're aware of them. They're less likely to come at you if if you're looking straight at them. And trust your instincts. If you feel uncomfortable or a situation is suspicious, get the fuck out of there. Follow your instincts. You can always apologize later if you were wrong. 
Number two would be download safety apps. There's a bunch of self-defense apps out there you can put on your phone. It will um, program emergency contacts. You, It'll allow you to set alarms to where you have to check in with the app, and then it, it will actually contact your emergency contacts if you do not you know, log in and do what you're supposed to do and check in. There are alarm apps to make your phone flash and make loud noises. That will, those are good too. Three, make yourself difficult to subdue. Many attackers will usually approach from behind and grab you in a bear hug or grab your arm. Ever see a small child who doesn't want to be held? It says to copy them. Wriggle around with all your might, drop your weight on the ground, twist your body, basically freak the hell out. It will make them harder, make it harder for them to grab you and grip you. Four, aim for the weak spots. Just like we said before, aim for the eyes, the groin, the throat, the temples, the kneecaps, all of those little soft little spots that are going to put them on their knees. That's Those are the spots you want to strike. Five, learn how to defend against punches. Make sure you know how to block them. You don't want to be knocked out. You want to give yourself a chance at escape. So hold your fists up near your face or protect your face and your jaw to prevent a punch from knocking you out. Keep your chin down and your fists up and your body braced. Six, arm yourself. If you need to carry a knife, pepper spray, bear spray, guns, whatever you got, carry a taser, stun gun. If, you know, laws allow in your area, just make sure you're well within the law and you know how to properly use it so you don't hurt yourself. Seven, know how to get out of different holds. Practice these holds. There's a wrist hold. If a wrist, if an attacker grabs your wrist, twist your hands so your open palm face the ground. This will force the weakest part of their grip where the thumb meets the fingers to be positioned on the side of your wrist. Then you can push your hands out against this part of the grip to free your wrist. A choke hold. If you're in a choke hold, pry their thumbs away from your throat, not their fingers. The thumbs are how they get a grip. Headlock. To free yourself from a headlock, you have to go for their hands. Their hands will be gripped on one side of your head. Focus on tearing their hands away from your neck by hooking your hands onto theirs, using your entire body weight to pull them away. These are all things that need to be practiced. They need to be um, second nature, instinctual. Eight, avoid standing still. Keep your body moving at all times. A moving target is harder to hit. So make sure that you, you don't stand still. You might have to punch, kick, flail, do whatever. These, these movements will overwhelm your attacker, which can cause them to run away or at least stop trying to attack you, for sure. Number nine, practice these techniques in your defense plan regularly. Sometimes it's hard to remember all these things, but if, you know, in, in a crisis situation, sometimes our minds go blank and we freeze up. We don't know what the fuck to do. We start to panic. If you've been practicing these techniques and you've mastered it, then you're it's just like muscle memory. You're just going to go for it. You're going to do it. It's going to be instinctual. 10, your belongings are not as important as your life, okay? Sometimes you got to let go. You got to just give them your bag, your car, your watch, whatever. These things can be pl- replaced and your life cannot. So do not do not fight back over material shit. And another point I want to throw in is do not allow them to take you anywhere else. Like granted, giving them their, your stuff is one thing, but going with them is always a bad idea. Whatever you can do to not go with the attacker or the person that's trying to harm you or take you, don't go with them. Do whatever you can. Even if you have to fling yourself out of a vehicle, you do not want to go with them. So I hope these pointers will help you out and stay tuned after the advertisement for the stoic thought of the day. I forgot to include that the ears are another vulnerable spot. 
It only takes a few pounds of pressure to rip off an ear. So remember, if you can't get to the eyes or the throat, grab an ear. And another thing is the clavicle, the collarbone. That's another thing that'll stop them dead in their tracks. You grab a hold of that if you have no, nothing else that you can possibly do. Start beating on that collarbone. Okay, now we can move into our ad. And then stick around for the stoic thought. Remember, if you're looking to lose weight, boost your energy, and reduce inflammation, check out Cacao Bliss chocolate that's actually healthy. Enjoy the incredible health benefits of chocolate without worrying about the side effects of added sugars and artificial ingredients. And right now, you can save 15% off your next order of Cacao Bliss. Go to earthechofoods.com, use the promo code TRANSPARENT when you're checking out. That's earthechofoods.com, and use the promo code TRANSPARENT when you check out. Our stoic thought of the week goes to the great George Washington. And he said, Government is not reason. It is not eloquent. It is force. Like fire, it is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Experience has taught us that it's much easier to prevent an enemy from posting themselves than it is to dislodge them after they have gotten possession. And when the freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led, like sheep to the slaughter. He also said, Firearms stand next in importance to the Constitution itself. And... When one side only of a story is heard and often repeated, the human mind becomes impressed with it insensibly. And last but not least, I hope I shall possess firmness and virtue enough to maintain what I consider the most enviable of all titles, the character of an honest man. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining me.